This is Tom Lee, Editor-in-Chief of NEJM Catalyst, and today we're talking about the crisis in nursing with Chuck Stokes, the former CEO of Memorial Hermann Health System in Houston. Chuck began his career as a nurse and ultimately rose to the top of two organizations and led them to achieving the Malcolm Bowbridge National Quality Awards, North Mississippi Medical Center in 2006, and Memorial Hermann's Sugarland Hospital in 2016. I don't know if anyone else out there has led multiple organizations to Baldrige Wars, but Chuck has, and Chuck remains a major leader in healthcare today. These days, as is true for many of us, he is thinking a lot about the crisis in nursing. He has thoughts on short-term, medium-term, and longer-term measures that we need to take. So, Thanks for joining us, Chuck. And let's start with the equivalent of taking the patient's vital signs. How bad is it? How severe is this nursing crisis? And how worried should we be? Well, good afternoon, Tom, and uh, thanks. I I think that the crisis um, is a situational crisis. Uh, I think that it, right now it, it appears to be fairly severe across the country. People are having very difficult times. Uh, staffing their hospitals and healthcare organizations. And um, so let me just kind of start from a historical perspective. And I'm going to go back to 1979 when I was an assistant director of nurses at University of Mississippi Medical Center in Jackson, Mississippi. And I had responsibility for the critical care units at university at the time. And we were a trauma center for the state of Mississippi. And so we ran uh, critical care units, 24 hours, seven days a week, and we were always busy. And so I can truthfully say that since uh, 1979, I have been recruiting nurses for the last 44 years of my career. It never stopped. And in 1979, we were recruiting nurses from the Philippines, from Canada, from England, uh, and we were doing the same thing that people are today. We were offering sign-on bonuses, we were leasing cars, we were paying referral incentives to get nurses to come to University Medical Center. And so uh, when, I, when I left nursing and went into healthcare, uh, becoming a healthcare executive after graduate school, uh, I still, we, every, I've been in eight different organizations in my career and literally in all eight organizations for 44 years, I've never gotten to a point where we had enough nurses in our organization. So uh, that's kind of a ironic type uh, situation to be discussing from a historical perspective uh, compared to where we are today. But some of the historical issues about nursing uh, education, uh, many years ago, back in the 70s and 80s, uh, there was very stringent admission criteria for nurses, which actually limited the pool. And then uh, there was the same thing that we're having today. There were not enough faculty. They were poorly paid, and there wasn't enough nursing faculty because when um, nurses got out of nursing school, they could make more money practicing than they could teaching. So you had to really have somebody that was very committed to the academia and research to go into nursing uh, education. And then there were always limited budgets for nursing faculty. If they were a nursing school, attached to a big medical school or a lot of other allied health professionals, uh, there were there were always limited budgets. And then because of the diversity 
of nurses uh, forever. Um, it, it was still applicable back in the 70s and 80s. Nurses came out of school and could do other things than take care of patients. They could work for insur insurance companies. They could go to work for pharmaceutical companies and biomedical companies. And then what we've seen in the last five years is we've seen a lot of nurses um, realize that, wait a minute, I can kind of put, especially millennials and, and younger nurses, that 25 to 35 year age group said, hey, I can put my career on hold for a couple of years. And I mean, I can put kind of put my life on hold for a couple of years, go back to school and become an advanced nurse practitioner and I can double my salary. And so uh, for those reasons, you know, we've, it's, I think nursing has always been a challenge to have enough nurses to keep up with whatever the demand is. And so the new issues um, that are, that we're faced with now that uh, we're going to be faced with in years to come is first of all, just aging of the workforce. And that is the same as the aging of the population. We've got 10,000 people a day turning 65 years of age or older. And uh, work, if you look at nursing, I think the last statistic that I saw was 50% of the nursing workforce is over 50 years of age. So that amounts to the brain trust, really, for nursing. And then uh, the one of the, so you got aging of the workforce, you've got nursing engagement. And I think that this um, is an issue for healthcare workers in general. It's not just uh, for nursing, but Gallup released a poll in 2019, I think it was June or July of 2019, that said basically that only 37% of the workforce is engaged. Now, that's a scary number because that means 63% is either moderately engaged or they're not engaged at all. And when you think about um, engagement and what nurses do, and you think about our commitment to high reliability and zero patient harm, that becomes a very scary percentage if only 37% of the workers were engaged in 2019. And that was prior to the pandemic, that was prior to COVID. And then I think some of the uh, current issues from that nursing and other allied health professionals feel is respect from administration. Uh, the, nursing has always wanted input into patient care decision-making and that's not always been the case in all organizations. Now, there are a lot of organizations that have been very forward thinking and they have uh, provided um, nurses in governance roles. They have brought nursing uh, personnel on their boards and they have put them on governance committees uh, for the organization. But I think that the nursing respect and the respect for clinical care givers and physicians, I will say that that is also applicable or physicians is something that's very important. And then of course, over the last 18 months, we have issues with burnout and moral injury as a result of the pandemic and the work environment that that's created. And so the burnout and the moral injury just comes from um, you know, nurses and other allied health professionals get put in positions for which they don't feel like they were trained for. And, uh, and of course, no one feels like they want to offer anything other than optimal care. That's what nurses have always wanted. And they want to make sure they're staffed appropriately and they have enough uh, support help to provide excellence in patient care. And, uh, and so when the pandemic hit, 
this is a current issue because I'm saying within the last 18 months here, uh, initially we were faced, no, very few organizations in the country had um, enough PPE. So what happened was nurses and other caregivers, they got sick, they got their family members sick, and then they started dying. A lot of first, you know, uh, first uh, line responders in this country. And I think uh, I saw a, a number, um, I guess maybe a week or so ago, that there's been like 100, over 115,000 deaths in the world, worldwide to caregivers for caring for patients with COVID. And early on in COVID, not only did they get sick and, you know, had some of them were dying, uh, they got downsized and they got furloughed because if they weren't a nurse that was in direct patient care, a lot of them got laid off. And uh, that uh, caused a lot of ill feelings. And now what we're faced with is we're faced with wage wars between healthcare organizations. And we're seeing the rise in traveling nurses because they're offered some pretty um, outrageous salaries to go to different parts of the country. And we know that from an administrative standpoint that that's unsustainable for the future. And so uh, that the wage wards do present a current issue that we're going to have to deal with going forward. And uh, now we have the internal issues of vaccinated nurses working alongside unvaccinated nurses. And that's created another very, very uh, complex uh, dynamic within the workplace. And so, you know, historically, nurses uh, and other allied health professionals, they're, they don't quit during a crisis. Uh, nurses always rise to the occasion during a crisis, and they don't, they, don't, uh, they don't quit during the middle of a crisis. But one of my biggest concerns, and you and I, Tom, had a conversation about this recently, uh, I see a big exodus of nurses and other allied healthcare professionals after this is over. And is due to some of the things I've mentioned earlier, burnout, just mental health issues. Some are going to retire. They're going to take the position. I have survived AIDS, I've survived SARS, H1N1, hepatitis, and uh, other pandemics. And you know, when this is over, I'm going. I'm going to either do something else, or I'm on, or I'm going to leave the field. And I think that there's also one of the concerns I have about nurses leaving and taking time off, I think other industries are going to make a huge push towards uh, nurses. And these are like IT companies that um, big uh, EMR companies that say, come in, you know, help us uh, make our EMR easier for nurses and physicians to use. You can work from home. You don't have to worry about childcare. You can have, um, you can be at home when your child comes home from school. And I think that, again, insurance companies and biomedical companies and other companies are going to come after our workforce because they know they're going to be worn out from this pandemic. And then one of the biggest things that I've you know, seen here is an increase. Uh, this has been reported through Becker's and other organizations about a rise in nosocomial infection and harm events. Which is uh, something that we're, you know, that we're all concerned about. Everybody was on the journey. Most everybody was on the journey to high reliability and to getting to zero harm events prior to the pandemic. 
but I think the pandemic introduced a lot of other dynamics that people were just doing what they could to get through the day and to do the best they could in taking care of patients. So, you know, so that's a that's kind of a bleak, you know, that's that's the downside of kind of where we are with nursing and uh, and other allied health professionals. But I do think that, you know, there is a path forward and I think that we have to pursue that. Well, let's well, let's get to that path. I think you you gave a really great uh, well, first the perspective. You first you shared the perspective that this is uh, a chronic condition, uh, but there's a real exacerbation of it, and you've laid out the pathophysiology. It's complex. It's multifactorial, uh, and uh, and you. The bottom line is we should be worried, and uh, so uh, so turning now to the short, medium, and longer term issues. Uh, let's let's begin by talking about the shorter term ones because you know no one can blame the hospital leaders for feeling like we I got to do whatever I can to get through this uh, immediate crisis. So what are the most effective short term measures that you see being taken out there? Yeah, so I think that um, the the leadership, what leadership and the organizations are going to have to do today, is one they're going to have to be better listeners than they've ever been. And we have, um, in the past, probably hadn't has listened as good as we should to um, physicians and uh, nurses and other caregivers. But today, I think that uh, the issue of empathetic listening has to be uh, a core skill set of any leadership team. And I think that the second thing is we can use the issue of embracing diversity, equity, and inclusion within our organizations so that um, what, what nurses have always wanted is they wanted a voice in how the organization is run and how care is given. And so um, I, I always think about diversity as having a seat at the table, inclusion is having a voice in the organization and belonging is basically having that voice heard. And that's really what all caregivers want from their leadership. And this is a great time to re not just give lip service to diversity, equity, and inclusion, but to reach out and embrace it and bring the caregivers to the table and ask them, how can we solve these mega problems that we've got with financials and quality and safety and staffing and all this? Because if you ask physicians and you ask nurses and other allied health professionals, they will tell you all you have to do is ask them and listen. But you got to bring them together in some type of affinity group or human resource group. And I think that that needs to be done by the top leadership in the organization. It can't just be through the HR department or your HRO. It really needs to come and be led by the CEO in the organization. And uh, I, I saw this quote from um, Arthur Chan, who said, diversity is a fact, equity is a choice, inclusion is an action, and belonging is an outcome. And so I think that that's really something that leadership teams have to focus on today in order to start resolving this problem. Get the people to the table that are doing the work every day. The senior executive team will never have the perspective 
of how to solve these problems that the people that are actually doing the work will have. And so you got to bring them to the table. I think the other, uh, I think this is a short to midterm solution and I'll talk, I'll elaborate on it in just a little bit more, but I think bringing more highly trained technical personnel to support your licensed professionals. Now there are issues with that, but I think that um, that is something that is going to be uh, again, applicable for pharmacy pharmacists uh, so that there's pharmacy tax and respiratory tax and physical therapy tax, et cetera. And, and here's the future reality and why I say that. If there was some kind of miraculous thing that happened, that even if we could train all the healthcare professionals that we need for the future, the industry is just not going to be able to afford them anyway because the industry is getting ready to consume more healthcare resources than we've ever consumed in the history of the country. And that is because of the aging of the population. Again, 10,000 people a day turning 65. And we know the statistics on that. Anybody that's 65 and older is going to live with at least two chronic conditions for the rest of their life. And so there's no reversing this trend. And so we can't stick our head in the sand and say, well, we hope that uh, we can reduce the utilization or we hope that we're going to have more nurses and more primary care physicians and more advanced nurse practitioners. But the, the fact is we're not, we haven't been able to put enough in the pipeline for the past 30 years. And I don't see anything that will make us think that we can put enough in the pipeline for the next 30 years. And so the, the leadership implications for this is you, you're going, organizations are going to have to help fund more faculty positions. Now, we've done that most of our healthcare careers as healthcare executives. If we were tethered to a nursing school or multiple nursing schools, uh, we have fun. We spent hundreds of thousands of dollars a year helping fund um, uh, new faculty positions. But I think the, the real solution short term here is working with junior colleges and other technical schools to increase the technical training programs and skill levels for technicians. And um, uh, I think you and I also had this conversation. I think that these technical jobs need to really start in high school. I think that their junior and senior year of high school, these kids, get them interested in healthcare careers early on and, uh, and start their training so that they can go to school in the morning from, from eight till noon, but from one to five in the afternoon, you turn them over to a junior college or a technical program. And then uh, by the time they finish high school, they can come out into the workforce and earn a living wage. And, you know, in a lot of cases, this just not only will it give the student uh, a, a path forward career-wise because we know that if they were good employees, we'll send them back to school from a healthcare organization. We'll tuition reimburse them to go back and get a BS degree and, and some uh, allied health professional. But uh, I think that that is one of the short-term solutions. It comes with some thorny issues, and I'll talk about those in just a minute. But I think that the other thing is it's um, working with the professional associations to enhance 
the allied healthcare's professional training. Now, when you start these technical programs, sometimes allied health professionals say, well, all you're doing is trying to replace a licensed person with a technical person. And you're, you might even hear the term, you're dumbing down the profession. But it's really not what you're trying to do with the profession is healthcare executives have to work with the professional associations that license and train these individuals to help not only practice at the top of their license, but let's redefine their license. What is it that more can a BSN nurse do versus the things that they are licensed to do now? What other skill sets can they do? And then what other technical things can you take off their plate? Starting IVs, drawing blood, uh, a lot of these task-oriented things that a competent technical person can do. And then I think that organizations are going to have to provide more scholarships for employees to go into nursing. And, um, and you know, I mean, one of the things that you could do short term is if you've got a, an employee that's a nurse or, or any allied health professional uh, in your organization and their children want to go to nurse, nursing school, pay the child's tuition to go to nursing school. And then ask them to, for every year they send, we, the organization sends you to school, you, um, you owe me two years. You owe the organizations two years of, um, of service once you come out of school. And that way you retain an employee because the employee's never going to leave you to go somewhere else because you represent the tuition for their children. And then the child, you, if you got a year to two years after they graduated for every year that uh, you sent them to school, you know, that's kind of a win-win. And it sends a very strong message to the organization. We care about you as a nurse and we care about your family. Yeah. And then I think more nurse residency programs. Uh, we have to, we can't take nurses out of school and we haven't been able to do this for a long time and put them in the workplace and say, go take care of patients and provide excellent patient care. You're going to have to, you're going to have to have a very disciplined nurse residency program that might be up to a year uh, before you turn the nurse loose to take care of a patient on their own. And we, we had great experience with this at Memorial Hermann. Um, the, we did it for the last, I don't know, five or six years I was there. We, we took a nurse out of school and paired them with a uh, mentor for a year. But our retention rate on nurses that were coming out of that nurse residency program, after two years, it was over 90 percent. It was like 92 or 93 percent. And so that, again, says, um, you know, we care about you uh, as, a, as a person and we want you to be successful in our organization. And then I think building trust and resiliency organization leadership has to focus on that. Um, you know, uh, we, we always say progress is made at the speed of trust. You got to build trust with your uh, with your organization. And when you're looking at resiliency, things like flexible work schedules, you know, job sharing, splitting shifts, those kind of things, uh, incentives for retired nurses to return to the workforce. I know a lot of people are doing that. Um, my wife and I, my wife is a pediatric nurse practitioner by training. And she and I are both volunteering at a vaccination clinic here in Huntsville. 
And uh, we've been vaccinating people because we're both old nurses at the end of our career. And here we are, how we started our career, vaccinating people. But we're doing it from a volunteer standpoint. But you have a lot of your volunteer, your, your retired nurses or those that recently retired, you got to remember they're, they're your, also your brain trust in your organization. And if you can bring them back in, and they might not can work 12 hours, but if they can split shifts and work six hours uh, or split you know, six-hour shifts, um, that would be a really good thing. And then I think that uh, we know that nursing enrollment, we're seeing that up in many nursing schools. However, our school here in Huntsville, our nursing school, the enrollment is down because some people are saying, maybe I don't want to go into the nursing field. But also, the the pandemic has inspired a lot of people, I, I think, to go into healthcare. And so we also should be encouraging more nurses to produce, uh, pursue advanced degrees uh, um, to, again, enhance their skill set so they become more in, in, important to the organization. And identify internal talent within your organization for promotion. If you've got a good uh, ward clerk or you got a good uh, med tech or a rad tech and you want you think that person has the capability of functioning at a higher clinical level invest in that person and get them into uh, uh, an advanced uh, either an advanced degree in their field or get them into a nursing program if they are in that technical group and then I think you have to invest in your leadership academies within your organization. How does your organization train leaders uh, for the future? Yeah, I uh, think Chuck, other I think, things, you, know, you, you covered yeah. a lot of ground, and I, I would say that you got. I'm listening to you and taking notes here. You you covered some really short term things besides you know just doing you know the usual HR stuff, but like the listening stuff in particular. That's something that people can can really emphasize this week. You brought up longer term issues. Uh, and I think the big takeaway that I hadn't really thought of is it's not just thinking about the pipeline of nursing, but it's the pipeline of the other types of, of work around them that can help with the redesign. Yep. But let me turn just back a little bit to the medium term and the, the job redesign issues. And, and you talked about you know politically sensitive uh, uh, steps like bringing in um, other types of personnel, but like, and I, I think, the, but the specific thing I wanted to ask is like the actual, you know, uh, you know, I see nurses doing a lot of time documenting, and um, like, like, what do you think is the low hanging fruit of what we can take off nurses' plates and give to someone else? Uh, that might be something that may, it may not be something that can be done this week, but it, can, but it might be something that can be done over the next several months. Um, any any well, thoughts on that kind of redesign? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of back to how can you bring somebody, and I think some of this can be done within your organization as well, but it's taking those technical skills that can be done safely by a non-licensed individual. And sometimes we're hesitant, nurses are hesitant to give those things up. But again, it is like, um, it, it's like starting IVs, drawing blood, uh, doing sterile dressing changes, 
uh, you know, AMBU and suctioning patients uh, in the ICU, range of motion. Uh, it's those kind of things that uh, you really want the nurse focus on. Here's my nursing care plan. I've implemented it. Here's the patient's response. What do we need to alter uh, the plan to make it more clinically efficacious for the patient? Uh, what do I need to be having conversations with the physician and the medical team about about uh, about this patient's condition? And these other tasks that are really technical task-oriented things can be done by another person. Now, you can do many of those things inside your organization through your um, your in-service training programs. My, the thing I alluded to earlier about you know, getting people in high school, junior and senior year of high school, that's a little bit, uh, that, that should be viewed as short term though, in my opinion. I think that's something that, they are starting that for like LPN programs in some high schools now, so that when they graduate from high school, they can take their set for their LPN exam and they can do that. But I think that that technical level skill set for nurses should start. Uh, you can start it now within your hospital and just say this is the and, and you're going to have to probably work with the state nurses association to say we're okay with somebody, a technical person drawing blood or starting an IV, uh, et cetera. I'm sure you have to go through those hoops. But you can't, you shouldn't wait on that. Those are things that you should really start now. Well, you know, uh, wrapping up, let me ask, you know, uh, you just think back and say, and, and, and share what drew you to nursing way back when and when you were starting out and would you be drawn to nursing today? I, I guess the real question is, what can we do to nurture the younger versions of Chuck Stokes? Yeah, well, I think um, healthcare people, uh, healthcare professionals are drawn to the field for the same reason. They want to help people and they want to make a difference. I think that people um, still want to do that. Nursing has been one of the top two or three most highly respected professions in the country every year, regardless of the survey, uh, who does the survey. It's always been in that top five category. And it's always usually been like two or one or one, two or three. And so I think that people are going to continue to want to do that. But I think that organizations have to make sure that they are providing the environment that makes people want to continue to come into nursing. And that environment is, you know, they got to take care of their employees. They got to provide childcare. They got to have 24 hour, seven day a week mental health services. They have to embrace diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, they have to get through these big barriers. They got to have leadership teams that have zero tolerance for leaders that don't treat people with dignity and respect and, the, and, and that are not empathetic listeners. They have to have that to build trust and build a culture within the organization to support zero patient harm, high reliability, the things that attract people into healthcare, whether it's nursing, physicians, or other reasons. Well, you know, Chuck, I think that, you know, you have dissected a complex issue 
beautifully. And I hope that many of our listeners and readers will go back through it uh, and, you know, jotting down the list of factors that you have raised as contributing to the challenges and the array of steps that should be undertaken uh, to address it. And my hope is that we will, and that we'll be continuing to attract the, the younger versions of you and, um, and that we, we will have a better healthcare system as a result. I'm sure this issue is not going to be going away uh, anytime soon. As you said, you've been working at it for 40 some years. Uh, you know, we'll, we will be coming back to you for more insights and commentary of how we're doing and what we need to do next. So thanks again for all of your time and your thoughts. Absolutely, Tom. You guys, have a, have a great day.